Hey everyone, welcome back once again to my podcast, Anatomy and Physiology Bit by Bit. This is your host, Dr. Steve Sullivan, and I am once again back in my house in the suburbs of Philadelphia, recording from here. Uh, again, sorry if you've been waiting a long time for new episodes. Uh, it's summer, kids are home, lots to do. Um, with COVID still shutting down a lot of the activities in this region of the country, in the U.S., we still have um, mostly uh, in-home things that we are all trying to do together. So this episode, we're going to be focusing on the contraction of muscles, of skeletal muscle specifically. This is episode 16, and skeletal muscles contract in a pretty specific way. And it's a really interesting process from the point of when they're stimulated to contract by a motor neuron to when they finally contract and then relax. So I recorded the components of muscle contraction separately, so uh, I will um, bring it on to there pretty soon. But I just wanted to thank those of you who have been reaching out to ask me for more episodes and to specifically talk about what you're learning, and then asking questions. I had a question. It's not muscle-related, but I had a question about the immune system, which was pretty interesting. And then I also had a question about stem cells and um, how stem cells can help to repair an injury and how do they know to become the cells that are injured. And uh, the interesting thing about that is if you look at embryology and you look at the way the, the, way the nervous system forms embryonically, there's a process called induction. Uh, this principle of induction means that stem cells are what we would call undifferentiated cells, cells that don't have a specific structure or function yet. Uh, those cells can be induced to develop into specific cells by the cells around them. Um, so induction is a way that stem cells can be um, induced to become the cells that we're trying to replace with them. So, uh, and this happens basically by um, turning on and off different genetic regions of the DNA and things like that. So if you want to review some of my earlier podcasts, back in the early episodes, we talk about um, genetic gene expression and protein synthesis and uh, how DNA works and how DNA is structured and how that dictates the structure, I'm sorry, the formation of proteins. So you can review those podcasts um, earlier on in earlier episodes to see exactly how that stimulating gene expression or altering gene expression would work. So that was a good question. Thank you for uh, sending me that question. By the way, that question came from a listener whose name is a Molokai uh, from Georgia in the United States. So um, I also had a really nice comment from a listener who is in Scotland, and that listener's name was Sean. And Sean had a really nice comment about how much he looks forward to hearing new episodes and it's helping him study for his summer courses, and I really appreciate that. Again, I apologize that they're not coming out as quickly as you'd like, but, um, you know, I'm doing the best I can to sit down in my recording studio, uh, whenever the house is quiet and, and I'm not doing 
dad things or author things or, you know, other things like that. So um, hopefully for people who are getting started in the fall, there'll be a good batch of, of episodes they can use throughout the semester. All right, so uh, I think that's enough for me. I think it's good good time to get started on the content for this episode. So I hope that you enjoy learning about how muscles contract, and um, let's get to it. A specific motor neuron carries electrical nerve signals to a skeletal muscle fiber. The axon of one motor neuron has several axon terminals, each with a dilated end piece called the synaptic knob, which is sometimes referred to as the synaptic end bulb. This orientation allows one motor neuron to innervate multiple myofibers at the same time. The combination of a motor neuron and all the myofibers that are innervated by it is called a motor unit. Any nerve signal from a motor neuron stimulates all of the myofibers it innervates. Precision of muscle contraction comes from having smaller motor units, which means the more neurons you have in a particular group of myofibers, the more control you have over contracting that muscle. Take the muscles that move your eyes, for example. You can move your eyes millimeters at a time to fine-tune your focus on very specific objects. This is because those muscles have very small motor units and can engage in very precise movements. The quadriceps muscles of the thigh are not as precise in movement because they have larger motor units. The more myofibers you contract, the more force the muscle exerts. When you lift a pen, for example, you need far fewer myofibers to contract than when you lift a jug of water. Your brain decides how many motor units you use to make a particular movement. This is called recruitment. If you've ever picked something up that was much lighter than you thought it would be, like an empty jug that you thought was full, and you almost threw it up to the ceiling by accident, that's because your brain recruited too many motor units. The communication point between any neuron and the cell it innervates is called a synapse. For the neuromuscular junction, there is a space between the synaptic knob and the sarcolemma of the myofiber called the synaptic cleft. Since this particular kind of synapse uses chemicals called neurotransmitters, it's called a chemical synapse. Excitation is the process by which a motor neuron's nerve signal stimulates the production of an action potential in a myofiber sarcolemma. It is essentially a chemical synapse between a neuron and a skeletal muscle cell, utilizing the neurotransmitter acetylcholine. We can look at excitation as a step-by-step -step process. It begins with the nerve signal in the motor neuron reaching the synaptic knob and stimulating the opening of voltage-gated calcium ion channels. Since calcium ions are higher in concentration outside the cell, they diffuse into the synaptic knob down their concentration gradient. The calcium ions trigger the exocytosis of synaptic vesicles, releasing acetylcholine into the extracellular fluid of the synaptic cleft. Nerve signals, one after the other, continue to stimulate this process until the brain stops sending signals to do so. The region of the sarcolemma opposite the synaptic knob is called the motor end plate, which is loaded with membrane proteins that function as acetylcholine receptors. 
Each receptor is a ligand-gated ion channel and has two binding sites for acetylcholine. The motor end plate also has several invaginations called junctional folds that increase the length of the end plate's sarcolemma and therefore the number of receptors available for stimulation, which can be up to 50 million per synapse. Diffusing across the cleft, acetylcholine binds to its receptors on the motor end plane. When both binding sites are occupied, the ion channels open and sodium ions diffuse into the cell, rapidly depolarizing the membrane. Then, potassium ions diffuse out, repolarizing the membrane. Each of these ions moves down their own electrochemical gradient. The rapid depolarization and repolarization is an event called the end plate potential. An enzyme called acetylcholine esterase in the synaptic cleft breaks down the unbound acetylcholine so it doesn't overstimulate the motor end plate. So when the nerve signals stop, so does the excitation of the myofiber. The end plate potential stimulates adjacent voltage-gated sodium and potassium ion channels in the sarcolemma to open. These ions again diffuse down their own electrochemical gradients, depolarizing the sarcolemma. This result is called a muscle action potential, which means the myofiber has now completed excitation. When an action potential reaches a transverse tubule or T-tubule, it follows the T-tubule's path running adjacent to a terminal cistern of the sarcoplasm, all the while continuing to stimulate the opening of voltage-gated ion channels, propagating this muscle action potential all along the sarcolemma. In the T-tubule, the action potentials stimulate the voltage-sensitive dihydropyridine receptors, or DHP receptors. These receptors are physically linked to the ryanodine receptors, or RYR1 receptors, of the calcium ion channels in the membrane of the terminal cistern of the sarcoplasmic reticulum. When the DHP receptors are stimulated, they undergo a conformational change, which means they change shape. That change triggers the RYR1 receptors and causes the opening of the calcium ion channels in the terminal cistern of the sarcoplasmic reticulum. Since calcium ions are higher in concentration in the sarcoplasmic reticulum than they are in the sarcoplasm, they diffuse down their concentration gradient into the cytosol of the sarcoplasm. The calcium ions in the cytosol can now bind to the troponin of the sarcomere's thin filaments. This binding causes the troponin-tropomyosin complex to undergo its own conformational change, exposing the myosin binding sites on the G-actin of the thin filaments. These sites are now available for binding to myosin heads. Muscle contraction is the process by which the myofiber develops tension which is the amount of force it exerts on its attachment sites. A skeletal muscle doesn't always shorten when it contracts, but when it does, it moves the joint it crosses. If it's a circular muscle, the diameter of its center gets smaller. In the sarcomere, the myofilaments themselves do not become any shorter during contraction. Rather, the thin filaments slide over the thick ones, increasing their degree of overlap, and pulling the Z-discs of the sarcomere toward the M-line. This causes the sarcomere itself to become shorter in length. For this reason, the mechanism of contraction is called the sliding filament theory, and it occurs in a series of steps. 
First, to initiate the process, there must be an adenosine triphosphate molecule, known as ATP, bound to the myosin head. The term triphosphate means there are three phosphate groups in a molecule of ATP. The myosin head contains an enzyme called myosin ATPase, which, with water, breaks the ATP down into adenosine diphosphate, or ADP, by breaking the bond between ATP and one of its phosphate groups. So we're left with ADP and phosphate. This enzymatic breakdown is called hydrolysis because it utilizes water and it releases the energy that was in the now broken bond. That energy activates the myosin head, causing a shape change, putting it into an extended, high-energy position. Next, the myosin head binds to one of the exposed myosin binding sites on a G-actin molecule of the thin filament. This forms what is referred to as a cross-bridge between the myosin and the actin. Then the myosin head releases the ADP and phosphate and returns to its original low-energy position. When it does that, it pulls the thin filament with it because it's still attached, and that is referred to as a power stroke. A new ATP molecule then binds to the myosin head, which causes it to detach from the G-actin's binding site, thus disassembling the crossbridge. This ATP lets the myosin head return into the high-energy position again, so the process can repeat and pull the thin filament closer to the M-line. Notice that the myosin heads on opposite sides of the sarcomere are arranged in opposite directions. So the thin filaments are pulled toward the middle of the sarcomere, as the degree of overlap between the filaments increases. Each power stroke only shortens the sarcomere very slightly, but several power strokes happen in succession to achieve the desired tension. The steps to achieve this can be referred to as crossbridge cycling. The sarcomere does not snap back to resting length when the myosin heads detach. An opposing force, like a muscle's antagonist or gravity, must act on it to pull the muscle back from the contracted state, and decrease the degree of overlap between thick and thin filaments. Notice that ATP is not only needed to form a crossbridge, but also to break a crossbridge. For this reason, ATP is required not only for contraction, but for relaxation. Without ATP, the muscle would be stuck in a perpetual state of contraction. We see this shortly after death in what is known as rigor mortis. Eventually, the proteins of the filaments break down and rigor mortis goes away. When contraction is over, the muscle stops contracting, which is called relaxation. When the nerve signals from the motor neurons stop coming, acetylcholine esterase catches up and removes the acetylcholine from the synaptic cleft. Without it, Stimulation of its receptors on the motor end plate ends. With no muscle action potential generated, no new calcium ions can be released from the terminal cisterns, and the calcium ion pumps in the sarcoplasmic reticulum reabsorb calcium ions, decreasing the concentration of calcium ions in the cytosol of the sarcoplasm. That absence of calcium ions allows tropomyosin to return to its original conformation blocking myosin binding sites and therefore inhibiting crossbridge formation and lessening the tension created by the myofiber. 
Okay, I hope that really helped you get a good handle on the way muscles contract, specifically skeletal muscles, of course. Smooth muscle is a whole different situation, so the way smooth muscles contract um, doesn't look at all the same. The way they're stimulated is not the same, so um, I can work on an episode on that as well moving forward. Sometimes in my class, I tend to hold off on the function of smooth muscle until we get to things like the respiratory system, the circulatory system, the digestive system, where it really applies more. So good luck on your next exam. Good luck with a and I'll talk to you next time. Hey everyone, don't forget to check out my YouTube channel, Student Help for AP. Student Help, the number four, AP. There's a lot of tutor videos on there that I think could be really helpful. I also have an Instagram account and a Twitter feed with the same name. Anatomy and Physiology Bit by Bit is a production of Minus 55 Media, with a special thanks to Bucks County Community College, McGraw-Hill Higher Education, and my family.